good Wednesday morning. That's at least that's whenever I'm doing it. When it wherever you are in your life, welcome home. We're glad you found our safe harbor and this study. We're in First Corinthians 15, and we have a lot of work to do here. I'm not sure we're going to get through it all in the day, but I hope so because we have a lot to get to, don't we? First Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. There's a thing. You have to choose a story. Don't let other people choose the story for you. The atheists have a variety of stories. Um, Christians have a variety of stories. What's your story? I've chosen that Jesus is the word of God and he is the son of God and he's our savior. And that's my story. That's where I stand. And when I talk to atheists, I tell them, Everybody has to pick a story and they get it. So where are you standing? What is your story? By this gospel, he says in verse two, you are saved. It would be very helpful if we took the word gospel out and put in the word good news, because that would help flavor our understanding of what he's talking about. What is the good news, the gospel, the good news he preached to us? And by this good news, you are saved if you firmly hold to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Well, that doesn't sound very certain, does it? You know, if you did it right, then you're saved. But if not, then you're not. And that doesn't sound like very much good news until you realize that we have completely botched the word word. The Bible says Jesus is the word of God. Read John chapter 1. And Time after time after time, when we come across the word, word, in Paul's writings in particular, we tend to gloss right over the fact that Paul knew that Jesus was the word of God. So let's back up. Let's do these two verses again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this good news you are saved if you hold firmly to the Christ I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. What a transformation. And we're not doing damage to the Greek text here. We're not throwing away anything. Paul did not believe that he, you know, Jesus came to give us a possibility of salvation. And then Jesus, uh, then Paul came to give us the laws of church and behavior. He didn't believe that. He was trying to show us what it meant to be a Christ follower in Corinth or Ephesus or wherever we happen to find ourselves. In fact, he even brings this up in the next verse. For that which I received, I, and that's directly from God, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and he appeared to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, we'll get into that in a bit because he does take a little step to the side. What is the most important thing? That Jesus is the son of God and that he was resurrected. Now, there are a lot of other things we might decide this is the one big important thing. Paul says this is. Why? Because the resurrection is what we should be focusing on. 
we often focus on the cross to to the point where we don't talk about the resurrection and what Christ did. And when we talk about what he did on the cross, we tend to focus on the forgiveness of sins, which is, I, I will grant you, a very important thing. But he defeated death. He broke death and gave us the option of eternal life if we just follow him him being Christ, by the way, Paul does say once that you are to follow him, but he says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. In other words, only when you see me looking like Jesus, do you follow me? And Paul made it very plain. He knew sometimes he didn't look like Jesus. Read Romans 7. So that's the whole point. That's what we base it on. And isn't it interesting that we have uh, had fights and even wars slaughtering each other over doctrines and what guy should be in charge of the church that day when Paul says, no, there's, there's only one thing that's important. Focus on this one thing and you are saved by this one thing. Now, what, what is he dealing with here? This, this, uh, I'm an apostle, but as one abnormally born. Well, Paul came in late. Uh, whenever Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself, the apostles then picked Matthias to take um, Judas's place. By the way, there's, there's really no indication that that's what God had asked them to keep a sacred number of 12 or anything. Um, so I'm not really sure why they did that, and we don't hear much from Matthias, do we? But then after then, Christ appears to Paul when he's on the road to arrest and kill some more Christians, because that's what he did, believing it's what God wanted him to do. So he was doing that. And Christ met him on the road. And Paul is then baptized for the remission of his sins, to wash away his sins. And then he goes into Arabia, which was a very vague term at that time. It doesn't mean Saudi Arabia. It doesn't mean Iraq, Iran. It can mean anywhere in the wilderness. They were, it's kind of like the word Ethiopia, that word meant all kinds of places to them, not just where it is today on the Horn of Africa. So he went out there and for a very long time was taught directly, he says, by Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he will, he will often say, I didn't get this from man. This becomes very, very important in 2 Corinthians because in 2 Corinthians, he has to do a robust defense of his apostleship because some in Corinth, after all these letters, are saying, ah, I don't even, why are we even listening to this guy? I think he's making it up. Like the Monday morning message this week, it, it, it's some sort of a preacher story. He goes, I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. This is what you believed. The resurrection of Christ, the triumph of Christ over death, Christus Rex, Christ the King. I really wish we would focus more on that. And I believe that our safe harbor does, but there have been many times in my life where I've not, I've focused on 
what I thought were massively important things that aren't even given a mention here. And that, that humbles me and to some point shames me the way I preached and what I did. Hope I'm getting better. Hope you are too. Well, Paul here shows a little bit of his humanity, does he not? When he says, I worked harder than all of them. Okay, well, not me, but God worked through me. Is it, is it absolutely positively true that Paul worked harder than all of the other apostles? I, I'm not sure anybody could tell. And certainly Paul doesn't know what all the other apostles are doing. He's trying to make a point saying, although I came in late, man, you're not going to find me taking many days off. Corinthians had a lot of accusations against Paul. He's dealing with some of those. Next book's when he really does. But if it is preached, he says, verse 12, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this was already entering in. Uh, it, had, it had already long been there from the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the more liberal element of the Jewish faith. And again, I hesitate to use those terms because they're so such loaded terms. They did not believe in angels or demons or in a heaven or a hell in the sense that most of us do. And they did not believe that bodies would be resurrected. So undoubtedly some of that was the background teaching of many of these people that are now in the church in Corinth. And so he's saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, and if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You see, it wasn't just the blood of the cross. It was the defeat of death that took sin from us. That's what he's pointing here. He's not mentioning blood. He's mentioning the victory and what that did for us. Verse 18, then those all who have fallen asleep in Christ, that was a standard uh, term at the time for died. All right. We will talk about passed on. Uh, they passed away. They beat us to heaven. We've, we find ways not to say dead. And Paul's doing the same. If only, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this hope we have, I'm sorry, if only in this life we have hope for Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if all Christianity does is help you have a little bit better life now, that's pitiful. Isn't that interesting? Now, Pascal a great mathematician, Blaise Pascal, that, that came later, uh, many, many, many years later, would do Pascal's wager. If you don't know what that is, look it up. It's P-A-S-C-A-L, P-A-S-C-A-L, Pascal's wager. And I really like it. Some atheists don't think it's much use, but he used it as an argument for Christianity to be practiced. Paul would actually side more against me on this one than for me, because he's just saying, you know, if salvation's not the end game here, then this is just pitiful. 
you know, you're, you're only allowed to have sex and marriage and you're supposed to stay with that one person and you're supposed to give money to the poor and you're supposed to share your stuff. I mean, why would you do that if this is the limited amount of time you have to enjoy life before you're snuffed out and all is ended? Then he goes, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, we don't use first fruits the way they used it, if we use it at all. It just means he's the one who went ahead. He's the one who brings the fruit of eternal life to all who have died and all who will die who come to him. For faith came through a man. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all will be made alive. If you have tuned in the last two Wednesdays, we did three episodes, three weeks on 1 Corinthians 14, where the first week we went all the way through until we hit the woman passage and we stopped. And then for two weeks, we looked at women, ministry, roles, and how people have misused Paul's words and misapplied them. And then by doing so, created this myth of biblical womanhood that shuts women and their gifts away from the church. And that is such a tragic thing and unnecessary if we allow scripture to be what it is and not make it what it isn't. But that said, we brought up there that there are people who would go to 1 Timothy 2 and say, see, Paul says that women aren't supposed to have authority over a man because Eve sinned first. Did you notice what we just saw here? Here he says, it's through Adam that we all die. Doesn't mention Eve. Same thing, by the way, in the book of Romans. He says it's Adam was the one who sinned first. Now, that doesn't mean we have to get in a room and get our stories all together. It just means we're not going to peg this on the man, and we're not going to peg this on the woman. Adam is actually from a Hebrew word which just means humanity. So why don't we just allow simple things to remain simple? and not complicate them. But each in turn will, uh, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, in other words, Christ resurrected first, then when he comes back, then those who belonged to him, then the end will come when he hands over the, uh, the kingdom to God, the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Dominion, authority, and power could very well be referring to some of the civic authorities. It is also a very Jewish way of referring to demons, Satan, all those arrayed against us. And if I had to guess, I would say he's using this for both, because that's also a very Jewish thing done very often, for example, in the book of Revelation, which is written in a very Greek apocalyptic style, but uses endless Jewish metaphors, and callbacks and um, bits of history and scripture. Oh, there I went down a rabbit hole, coming back. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom. Now, have you ever paid attention to this? When we see Jesus in scripture after he ascended, he is seated, seated at the right hand of God, except when we see someone dying for him, like Stephen uh, in, in the book of Acts, 
or when we see martyrs in Revelation, then when you see Jesus, he's standing, standing as you die to receive you and out of respect. Wow, that should make your week right there. Oh, but we're not done. So we get to heaven um, and whether heaven's a redeemed earth or offsite somewhere, I'm not getting into that, not today. When we get to heaven, um, is Jesus going to be sitting on the throne ruling us? No. Nope. Did you see it? He's going to hand it all over to God. He's just, he's going to be with us. Think about that. Wow. Especially if your neighbor, or your boss, or your husband, your wife, or your kid, or your parents are telling you right now you're worthless. Jesus goes, I beg to differ. I will stand and receive them when that time comes. And whenever the kingdom comes at last and the, you know, all of this goes away, then I will, I'm going to hang out with this person. I'm not going to be on a throne. I'm going to hang out with them. How cool is that? He says he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under his feet, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who will who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful day that's going to be. And he goes on further. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Mormons take this and they run with it. And they do, they're world famous for doing genealogy. Uh, their, their records are perhaps the, the most extensive, complete and accurate in the world of tracing family trees. And, and you can pay them to trace yours if you wish. Um, they believe that they can go into the temple and in their sacred ceremonies be baptized to save somebody retroactively, somebody who already died. And yes, they also go in there to get married to people that they're not married to so that when their celestial kingdom comes, then they'll be married to them. Uh, my wife has several relatives who at one time or another were Mormons. Uh, I don't know if she has any currently or not. She was born in Idaho, raised in Colorado, and they are in that region pretty, pretty thick from time to time. And I have no doubt, but that somebody entered a temple somewhere to marry Cammie so that in, in heaven they, they would have her. Not going to happen. They, they, they warp this. So what does it mean, those who are baptized for the dead? We're not really sure. And about this time, I can, I can almost hear the screams <laughs> of some that go, yes, I heard this explanation or it's here in this book and it perfectly explains it. I read those books too. And I agree that there have been some really cool arguments made. But mark me down as not convinced on any of these. So what is he talking about? I think we just look at the context and we can just say he wants us to understand that baptism is important. And we are baptized because we believe in a resurrection. If you'll notice in a baptism, they'll, they'll, they'll take you and they'll put you under the water. 
but now you're buried with Christ. But they don't keep you there. They bring you back up. Romans chapter 6, this is done as you, a sign that you are following Christ in his death to this world, burial and resurrection. And now we walk in newness of life. What a wonderful phrase. Our sins are washed away. Our night is turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled our souls. Love it, love it, love it. And believe it. Absolutely believe it. He goes, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And again, there are options here as to what that means. But don't get tied up in this seaweed and forget to take the rest of this boat trip. All right. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Now, I don't know what wild beast uh, Paul fought. Some believe that he was thrown into a gladiator ring. Um, I guess it's possible. We have no record of such a thing, not from the Romans and not from any New Testament writer. It could be the mob in Ephesus that uh, was just vicious, coming at them yelling, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Very upset at Paul. And that could be the wild beast he's talking about. But regardless, he is saying, why would I be going through all of this if Jesus had not been raised? If I did not have absolute assurance of eternal life with Jesus our Lord, why would I go through? I would quit and I'd go down, eat, drink, and then time comes, fall over and die. He's got a good point. He has an excellent point. He goes, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. What? Well, if you get it in the context of, of the situation at Corinth, he's just sending out a, warn a warning. If you're still hanging around people that are saying we're not resurrected, and if you're hanging around people that are doubting any of this, you might want to pull away because I think you're being corrupted. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Well, how foolish. Unless you sow does not come, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Oh, he's going to use a seed metaphor now. A seed is, is potential life, but it's dead until it is watered. Or if we're talking about a human seed, until it is fertilized um, or um, mammalian seed. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a wheat or something else. But God gives it to a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. If you're lost here, he's just saying, God designed that when you plant corn, you get corn. When you plant wheat, you get wheat. When you plant it, um, all right, I'm, I'm done. You know what he's saying. But whenever you plant our body, God will give a body as he is determined when it rises. Because all we see is a seed. The body we are to be, God knows. We don't. And he 
says in verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and flesh another. And by the way, that's just one of those things that makes me smile because this is um, information that I don't know if Paul was trying to be scientific here or if God just slipped in as he's inspiring Paul, a little bit of science. There was for a long time, there were people that would ridicule this passage and say that flesh is flesh and that we're no different than the, than the animals around us. And you still hear rings of that when I'll say we share, I'm making up a number here, 97.8% of our DNA with a chimpanzee. Um, the thing is, the flesh of people is different than the flesh of animals, which is different than the flesh of birds, which is different than the flesh of fish. Uh, some of the differences can only be found under an electron microscope or if you're working with the genetics, the DNA. But well, there are four basic types of flesh. And human beings that eat human beings develop nerve disorders, brain disorders. It is, um, it is, it's a really quick way to, to have the equivalent of Parkinson's, uh, ALS, Alzheimer's, all at the same time, because we are not designed. We're not designed for that. Uh, there was a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, a movie called The Book of Eli that was out there several years ago now, probably what, 10 or 12 years ago now. If you can get it, watch it all. Those are, there's quite a lot of violence. There's a message to it. And in this violent post-apocalyptic land, some humans seem to be thriving. And as Eli and a traveler enter the home of these people who are thriving and they offer them food, as they bring out the tray, their hands are shaking. And that's what tells Eli that's human. Yeah, see, flesh is different. All right, ran down, this, ran down a different rabbit hole. There are heavenly bodies or earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and stars differ from stars in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor because we, I mean, look, I'm all wrinkled and old. My hair is all blown about from driving in here in the slingshot. It's, it's buried in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. And again, he's using us and seeds as a metaphor to convince them. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit, Jesus being the, the last Adam. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man was of heaven, as was the earthly man, as are those that are of the earth. And, and again, the way Paul weaves sentences can be very complicated. And I read quickly because I know we don't have that much time. We may have to go back here. He's just saying, listen, we are of the earth, but we are also of the heavens. Uh, we bear the image of man. But then again, he says in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He then talks about the mystery. And the mystery is we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And whenever that's all been done, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us, it's present tense, it's flowing out right now, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What victory? Over death. And therefore we have no fear. As Paul says, we put ourselves in danger every day. We don't have fear. We have victory. Therefore, as he closes, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, and always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I think Paul should have the last word. God bless you. Be at peace. Faith is the victory because Christ gave us the victory. Have a long